There are over 100 cannabinoids found in cannabis, and more continue to be discovered. Each one has a personality, each has particular uses, and when they all work together, they are at their best. Federal cannabinoid prohibition influences the cannabis market in ways that pervert it to the detriment of everybody. Even though Delta-8 THC is widespread throughout the country, and many profess that it was made legal by the U.S. Farm Bill, it is not actually a legal cannabinoid. Its illegality is just not enforced. But that's not what we're covering during today's show. If you'd like to hear expert legal analysis on that topic, check out the new video clip from last week's Credo Science Delta 8 webinar on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel with attorney Lauren Rudick. During the webinar highlights you'll find there, she explains in detail the legal standing of Delta 8 and clarifies many of the misconceptions. And consider subscribing to the Credo Science newsletter to find out about their upcoming cannabis science webinars. Links to all of these are on the Shaping Fire website page for this episode. Today's episode is about the Delta 8 molecule itself, how it functions, how it doesn't function, and why how it's made is so important. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. Welcome to episode 110. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Dr. Russo has joined us several times on Shaping Fire, episode 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms, Episodes 11 and 27 about his famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids. Episode number 67 about treating migraines with mushrooms and cannabis. Episode 80 on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Episode 83 on cannabigerol, CBG. Episode 103 regarding the life's work of Dr. Raphael Mishulam. And of course, the Shaping Fire sessions on Shaping Fire's YouTube channel. During the first set today, we will take a look at the molecular nature of Delta-8 THC and its historical milestones. In the second set, we will learn about how Delta-8 is synthesized and how that creates complications for use of this cannabinoid. And during the third set, we will explore some of the lesser discussed attributes of Delta-8, including its propensity to cause failed drug tests and cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Ethan. 
It's nice to be here. You know, I had another first this morning while setting up here in my office studio. Uh, usually I can leave a window cracked facing the water for, you know, the good salt water smells. But today I had to close it because the sea lions have decided to have a party on the beach below my house. And, you know, you can just hear them honking away. And um, I did a little test and uh, you could actually hear them. And I thought, well, that would that would give people a little bit of sense of place, but but also probably not appropriate. And, and this isn't the first time that animals have played a role in one of your Shaping Fire episodes. You may recall that five years ago, I, we were recording and I had to ask you to hold for a moment because my neighbor's cows had found their way into my yard and were eating um, all of uh, my, my tulips. <laughs> and so you were kind to wait for a minute while I shooed them out of the yard. Yeah, the animals uh, want their voices heard. <laughs> totally, and and this island's definitely theirs as, as much of them, or maybe even more than ours. So anyway, so um, thank you for being here, Ethan. And um, let's get started right off at the top. You know, so many people refer to uh, Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol as, you know, D8, Delta-8. Everybody wants to shorten it, and everyone just kind of like assumes they, you know, other people know what it is. But but since this is a, a this is a good uh you know primer on what's going on with delta 8 in the cannabis scene i think we should start there so would you please describe what delta 8 is chemically sure so this is a normal trace uh compound found in cannabis it differs from the more expected delta 9 thc only in the fact that a double bond in one of the rings is in a different position. Um, interestingly, apparently the plant doesn't have any enzymes to make this, but it appears in trace amounts, even in fresh material. Um, and certainly under the influence of heat, uh, it may uh, appear in greater concentrations. So it is a natural component, uh, and it is more stable to heat than Delta-9 is. So that, that, that one caveat confuses me, because if, if, if the plant doesn't have a way to make it, are you suggesting that A, um, there is enough heat that, is, that happens during harvesting, that some amount of cannabinoid is... is uh, synthesized into delta 8 or are you saying that we just haven't figured out yet how the plant makes delta 8 because if it's there it's there yeah i think it's the latter mm -hmm. uh i'm not sure how it's doing it but plants are very resourceful and it may have some trick that doesn't involve uh, the customary enzymes Right on. All right. Well, that, that's really interesting. It's always great when there are uh, when we get to point out new research that's uh, looking to be done for all the folks moving into the industry. You know, so um, so delta nine is the form of THC that you know we're so familiar with and and humans love so much. How is delta eight different from delta nine chemically? Uh, again, you know, if we look at the molecular weight, it's the same. Uh, in terms of most reactions, uh, it's going to be the same. It does differ in its affinity uh, for the CB1 receptor, the psychoactive receptor in the brain. Uh, and so it is not quite as potent, but basically most of 
its activity would be similar rather than distinct from Delta-9. Um, and there's a very uh, involved experiment going on now, hasn't quite been completed by Ryan Vondre at Johns Hopkins. We have some preliminary results on it, but they haven't gotten through the full contingent of um, subjects for that study. So we will learn more, but there are more similarities than differences. That really surprises me because, um, you know, most people that I have spoken with say that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll struggle to describe what Delta 8 feels like to them, but they're always describing it as uh, feeling different than Delta 9, which we will often, you know, we will describe as a euphoric, right? And, and, and so, um, and it sounds like we'll get more to the bottom of this after this new study, but but in its essence, are you saying that that we're finding that Delta Eight actually feels pretty similar to Delta Nine, except that it's more like at a sixty percent potency? Ah, uh, that would be a a really reasonable way to characterize it. Yes. Hmm. All right. Um, that surprises me. All right. Um, so um, so it may have a a a reduced but similar euphoric effect as Delta-9 does. Um, let's talk a bit about the similar medical applications. You know, not only do we love the experience of of taking in Delta-9 THC, but, but it also has got long-heralded medical benefits of being an anti-inflammatory and an analgesic and, and an animemetic, meaning, uh, you know, uh, anti-nausea, uh, along with a whole bunch of other things. Um, does Delta-8 have any of those similar medical applications, or, or maybe we don't know yet? Quite likely, but again, there could be differences. There's only been one uh, real clinical study uh, dealt, done with Delta-8, and that was clear back in 1995. Uh, so this is a study by Abrahamoff and Meshulam, uh, they used pure Delta-8 THC, so not what people commonly have access to here, uh, we should say. They use this in relatively high doses to uh, children that had uh, blood cancers, you know, mainly leukemia and the like. Um, and this was given to counteract nausea and vomiting associated with the chemotherapy that they were getting. And there were 480 total applications, uh, administrations of this, and it was almost uniformly effective in allaying the nausea and vomiting. The other thing that was interesting was uh, they seemed to tolerate very high doses compared to that that would have been used in adults. But that um, just highlights something that was known, say, in the 19th century, that uh, young children seem to be resistant to the psychoactive effects of cannabis. Um, wow, that's interesting. It sure is um, explanatory a bit around how we see um, young children use THC cannabis oil without, um, you know, getting like really stoned, you know, uh, it, the, the, so many of, of the, the younger kids can get relief from their symptoms without the accompanying intoxication. And, and I've always wondered about that. Do we have any explanation for why kids uh, seem to be able to 
to tolerate um, that aspect of it? Sure. Well, the tongue-in-cheek explanation would be that kids act like they're stoned anyway. Oh. <laughs> um, but the more serious explanation would probably have to do with the density of CB1 receptors in the brain. And, and what, meaning that they don't have them developed yet, and so they're not, they're not taking it on board as fast? Is, is that the point? Right. So they're, they're not as expressed as, say, in, in an older person, an mm. adolescent or adult. Right on. Um, so back to the idea that um, uh, Dr. Mishulam et al. were um, using um, a, a large amount of Delta-8 isolate, um, which you're right, uh, you know, we don't have easy access to here right now um, for lots of reasons that we'll talk about more later. But this is normally when, you know, you, you've been on Shaping Fire before to talk about other novel cannabinoids. And this is normally when I say, well, you know, if the isolate is good, does this cannabinoid work more effectively in a uh, in a whole plant preparation instead of an isolate? But you've already said that it's there's only trace amounts of it. Um, is there any um, is there any analysis to support that that delta eight's presence or not? in such small amounts in a whole plant preparation has any meaning at all? Any, any substantive impact? Uh, the answer is probably not. And it was uh, addressed uh, quite well by a study that's now 50 years old, uh, Carniol and Carlini in Brazil back in 1973, actually did comparative studies in man uh, also in animals, comparing Delta-8 and Delta-9 THC. Um, and, um, you know, these are very carefully done studies that uh, answer some of those questions. But um, because Delta-8 proved to be half as effective as Delta-9 in causing rapid heart rate tachycardia, um, it also... Delta-8 was 30% less effective in producing impairment of time est estimation. Um, and it uh, was had less psychoactive value according to people's uh, subjective scores, you know, how they rated their psychoactivity. Mm -hmm. So their conclusion was, because of uh, the low concentration of Delta-8 in natural cannabis, that it probably had very little effect, uh, would be swamped by the higher amounts of Delta-9. Mm -hmm. And I should add at this time that we have no indication that we could selectively breed for higher Delta-8 THC concentrations. Um, so, you know, I had heard that before, but earlier in the show already, you had mentioned that we actually don't know how Delta-8 even comes into being in the plant. So um, what is the the early signs that we're getting this idea that it would be difficult or unlikely that we could um, selectively breed for increased Delta-8? Um, well, again, because there seemingly are no enzymes that would make it, 
Um, and uh, there's been a lot of cannabis breeding going on, and nothing has appeared that seems to have significantly more Delta-8 concentrations. So we, we just don't have a path forward for that. Mm-hmm. All right. And, I, uh-huh. you know, it's unclear to me that it would be worth the expenditure of time, money, and effort either. Oh, sure. Well, whether or not it makes sense from a, a market point of view is definitely true, but also a different thing. Because, you know, when you and I are here saying that, um, you know, there's no way to selectively breed for increased Delta 8, that, you know, if I was a breeder and hearing that, that sounds like a dare, you know? And, um, and if there is some, you know, established uh, botanical reason you know why we see a, a you know a blockage in that path for breeding i figured this would be a good time to bring it up sure um so um and i also think that it, now is probably a good time to say we're going to talk more about this later but but i can imagine listeners asking the question to themselves well then where the hell does all this delta 8 come from and um and spoiler alert we're going to tell you during the second set um that it, nowadays it is a uh, uh, almost entirely synthesized from cbd cannabidiol so we'll answer that question now but we'll get into that more during the second set so so ethan if if um if delta 8 is less potent than delta 9 and the high is not as delightful and the medicinal benefit isn't as substantial um it seems to me that there is an obvious market reason why such an inferior cannabinoid is being used in so many states in place of simply using traditional delta 9 cannabis um what is that reason well, at first, I, I'm not sure I'd use the word inferior. Mm. Um, it is inferior from the standpoint of quality control. Um, and really, the issue with Delta-8 is that it is synthesized, uh, that the uh, material that's produced is not pure, uh, that there can be all these byproducts about which we know very little in terms of their activity or safety, and the possibility of residual solvents. So the answer is because people make money doing it, and uh, because of the these interpretations of the law in some instances that Delta-8 is legal, um, people have been taking excess CBD and turning it into Delta-8 as a way to use it and make money with it. Um, Basically, in some instances, because there have been 0.3% Delta-9 restrictions on concentration, uh, people have tried to get around that by spiking things with Delta-8 of synthetic origin. Um, So it's a market issue uh, that is based on what I'm going to say is a misconception of the available law. And and one way or another, we can parse out the law, but more importantly, the the answer seems to me to be just straight up prohibition. That 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 if um, we had uh, federally legalized, you know, cannabis that the, the the market for Delta-8 would instantaneously disappear except for the small group of cannabis patients who who have uh, unique issues that Delta-8 
uh, can address, like the, um, the, the children during uh, chemotherapy that you mentioned earlier. And, and I think that's important to point out because, um, you know, we will be talking today about a lot of the challenges to using Delta-8 in, in the market as it presently, you know, functions today. But, but these questions are only um, happening and people who are uh, incorporating Delta-8 into their products, none of this would be happening if it weren't for federal um, prohibition of the preferred sibling Delta-9. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, let me state this clearly. The mm. current craze about Delta ATHC is a byproduct of prohibition. Excellent. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Um, all right. So, um, so that brings us to um, wanting to understand a bit about how we got here. And so, um, uh, I was uh, fortunate to uh, catch your uh, webinar a couple weeks ago um, about uh, the history of Delta Eight and its uses. And um, you, you've you've got the the historical milestones for Delta Eight in a really nice, like tight package now. So, um, I, I think what I'd like to do at this point. Um, would just be to, like, to hand you the mic and just let you go for a while and, and please just teach us about the historical milestones to Delta 8 that bring us to where we are now. Sure. Well, we have to go way back to the 4th century on what was then Palestine. Um, there was a skeleton that was found in a cave in Beit Shemesh, uh, which is about midway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Um, in this cave, there was the skeleton of what appeared to be a 14-year-old uh, young woman who apparently died in childbirth. Um, in her pelvis was an undelivered full-term fetus. Uh, next to her, there was this carbonized fragment of material that, when analyzed, showed delta-ATHC. Now, as I mentioned previously, that's more heat-stable than um, Delta-9. Uh, so the fact that it was there indicates that this was psychoactive material that apparently had been burned. And the, um, the analysis of the situation was that this cannabis was burned in an effort to aid delivery of the, the baby. Uh, which in this instance didn't work. However, there's been thousands of years of history of successful use of cannabis for this purpose. So that's the first Delta-8 I know about. Then we've got to go clear up to uh, about 1942. There was an American scientist named Roger Adams uh, who did a lot of work in analysis and synthesis related to cannabinoids. Um, Actually, in 1940, he sort of almost got the structure of cannabidiol. Uh, so he had a bunch of this and synthesized what he called tetrahydrocannabinols from it. But it wasn't pure. There were at least two forms. What he found out was when administered to dogs, this made them wobbly on their feet, what's called static ataxia. On then and earlier, this was a test for cannabis preparations as to their potency. 
he took some of this material actually 30 milligrams of what likely at this point was delta 8 thc put it in olive oil capsules and then tested these on um, convicts in new york 77 of them now this is interesting because i think people will see the similarities of effects to delta 9. so with the delta 8 capsules um, they got onset orally in 30 to 90 minutes. It uh, peaked somewhere between three and a half to five hours and was gone after seven hours. And the effects, again, were quite analogous to Delta 9. They had increased heart rate, a little bit of increased blood pressure, faster breathing. Their eyes got red. Um, they got dry mouth. Some got wobbly on their feet. Um, you know, recognizing there was a somewhat higher dose, some got anxious, some were euphoric. Uh, they talked a lot. It seemed to lower inhibition. Uh, they, those who were familiar with the term, felt high. Uh, there were bursts of laughter and some drowsiness. Um, and then they did experiments and showed that with prolonged usage, there was tolerance to these psychoactive effects. Um, now, interestingly, they made a distinction in uh, humans between inmates and what they called high-ranking individuals and industrialists <laughs> who also tried this, but the effects were quite the same. Uh, so it may show you that businessmen at a high level aren't that different than convicts, <laughs> but enough political commentary. Um, subsequently, uh, some of the same material, 15 milligrams of what was likely Delta-8 THC um, was again used on convicts in uh, New York. Um, this is part of what's called the LaGuardia Report that came out in 1944. But they used this to test uh, bout withdrawal from uh, narcotics, specifically morphine or heroin. Um, and so they compared this 15 milligrams of Delta-8 THC uh, to uh, what was called Magendi solution, which was just a, a form of morphine. Um, anyway, they found that uh, this helped with the withdrawal, reduced the symptoms, uh, and people were able to leave the hospital after treatment, uh, seemingly in better condition than those who got no treatment or got the, the morphine substitute. Um, so they were able to eat on some actually gained weight during withdrawal, which is not what we usually expect with opiates. Um, after that, we've got to go clear up to the 1960s. Uh, at this point, uh, Professor Mishulam and his colleagues were working out all the structures of cannabis components from hashish. Um, and so in 1963, they figured out the absolute structure of cannabidiol. In 64, uh, Delta 9 THC. Uh, in 66, um, they showed that um, you could turn cannabidiol into Delta 8 THC uh, through a chemical reaction. Um, so uh, two nasty things um, heated together with benzene and what's called rho-toluene sulfonic acid, and they could make delta-8-THC. Um, that and similar schemes have come down to us uh, in the current time uh, as a way to make delta-8-THC from CBD. 
And then there were some, some more experiments that were done. Um, uh, again, in 66, it was shown that you could find some tiny amounts of Delta-8 in fresh cannabis. Um, the dean of American cannabis studies in the 60s and early 70s with Leo Hollister, um, he tested Delta-8 THC, 20 and 40 milligrams as compared to 20 milligrams of Delta-9. Interestingly, they put this in chocolate cookies, um, but the effects were qualitatively very similar. Um, euphoria, tranquility, difficulty thinking, rapid thoughts, decreased memory. The time frame he got was onset in 30 to 90 minutes orally, peaking after two and a half to three hours on, with residual symptoms up to five hours. Um, overall, again, there seemed to be a lower psychoactivity head to head perhaps Delta-8 being about 63% of the potency of Delta-9 as I calculate it. And that might be in keeping with what people have said previously. Um, I previously mentioned the study of Carniol and Carlini in 1973 in Brazil. Their findings were really quite similar uh, to the others. Um, they uh, essentially thought it was uh, about 30% uh, less psychoactive um, and uh, very careful studies for the time. Um, so um, compared to what we're doing now, uh, they're, they're really valid studies. Um, and after that, uh, really not much happened beyond uh, Abrahamoff and Meshulam's study in 1995, clear up until a few years ago when uh, suddenly Delta-8 appeared um, in great profusion uh, as a way to get rid of surplus CBD. Right on. Well, then, um, that's actually a great setup. That's where we start set two. So, um, thank you for that explanation of those historical milestones. And um, let's go ahead and take our break. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll pick up right here. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. And, you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Gas Lamp Seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gas Lamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gas Lamp Seeds. Gas Lamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gas Lamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 60 breeders and over a thousand strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gas Lamp Seeds has something for everyone, with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos. And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. 
I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of Gaslamp-provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit GaslampSeeds.com today. That's Gaslamp Seeds. Fish Poop Brand Fertilizer is an all-natural fish poop concentrate with nothing added. Real fish poop is extraordinarily complex. Not only are you adding the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium your plants need to build mass, transport nutrients, and enhance flavor, but fish waste is also packed with biological activity and micronutrients. When you add fish poop to your irrigation water, you are adding life force, probiotics, and active microbes. These microorganisms include a wealth of various bacteria and protozoa, which further enhance nutrient availability for the plants. Because plants are limited by the absence of any essential micronutrient, these trace nutrients are the difference between having a decent garden and having a garden that makes you feel really proud of your efforts. Fish poop is a naturally complete solution that fills in the cracks in your fertilizer program to ensure you offer your garden a broad base of nutrients. Not all fish poop is created equally. Most products with added fish waste don't reveal their sources or lab results. Fish Poop brand Fish Poop, however, generates their own fish waste as a byproduct of their organic aquaponics cannabis farm where they raise ornamental koi and tilapia. You are even invited to tour their farm in person or on their YouTube channel to look for yourself. This sort of transparency is wildly rare in the fertilizer market. The folks behind Fish Poop are also lifelong medical cannabis producers who have deep connections in the community, donate more product than they sell, and support cannabis prisoner, veteran, and patient collectives and charities. To get your bottle of pure Fish Poop, go to fishpoop.com. And to see their entire line of cannabis products, go to ounceofhope.com. That's Fish Poop brand Fish Poop. Businesses everywhere are striving to reach people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into relationship with their customers is essential, and that is what we offer. We will explain your service or product, what sets it apart as desirable, and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot well, you can do that too. During these pandemic days, conventions and cannabis events are pretty poorly attended, but podcast listening is skyrocketing. 
With a commercial on Shaping Fire, you'll reach your customers in the privacy of their headphones right now and will continue to reach new listeners as they explore the Shaping Fire back catalog of episodes again and again for years. A spot on Shaping Fire costs less than a printed postcard per person, and the Shaping Fire audience is full of smart cannabis enthusiasts, cultivators, and entrepreneurs who are always curious to learn. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and Instagram advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is neurologist and canvas researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So before the break, we were bringing us up uh, historically to um, what is happening now where most folks, or nearly everyone, um, who is incorporating uh, Delta-8 THC into their products is doing so from Delta-8 um, that has been synthesized from CBD. And a reminder that the reason why they're not taking it directly from the cannabis plant is because the amounts are um, so low, so barely there in trace forms um, that uh, it, for both labor and financial reasons, trying to pull it out of a great deal of uh, plant material just doesn't make sense. Um, but because you can synthesize uh, CBD, excuse me, you can s synthesize Delta 8 THC from CBD. Um, and we had this huge glut of, of CBD on the market um, just, what, three years ago now, that the, the price of the, the, the CBD raw bulk material, the, the bulk plant material was so low that it made sense to pull out uh, cheap CBD out of these hemp plants and then go to the lab and synthesize it into Delta-8 THC, which, um, you know, even though it's less potent, um, uh you know, there is a way to cause a high and therefore is a way to make money. Um, so, uh, Ethan, what I'd like you to explain right now, uh, it, it's kind of like a, a two-part question. Um, for a lot of us who don't have lab experience, the idea of synthesizing Delta-8 THC from CBD is kind of nothing but words. And so if you could, um, you know, uh, you know, generally explain what it means to do that in the lab and kind of what that's like. Um, so we can picture that in our heads, what it is to synthesize something. Um, and then, and then the second part, which is I, part of your answer is, is that, um, the, the point of our concern about Delta-8 is that so many contaminants come along with it from the synthesis process, which then gets passed down to consumers. So this is, this is the crux of the problem, and, and I'd like you to explain the synthesis and why there are contaminants. Sure. Yeah, I think that's an important question. So let's say that we have a bunch of starting material. Uh, so this would be crystalline CBD that originally came from the plant or even could be, be from a synthetic source. So first this would be dissolved in some kind of organic solvent. Now they often will use things like hexane which is uh, something you'd find in gasoline. Uh, it's not something you'd want to ingest. Uh, then it's heated in the presence of an acid and uh, that uh, closes a ring on cannabidiol and uh, produces delta-8 THC. 
So that sounds fine, except um, then you've got to get rid of the solvent, um, presumably with some kind of drying or evaporation technique, but there always could be residuals and uh, you know that's a source of toxicity. But the real problem here is this isn't a one-to-one -one proposition. In other words, you don't get uh, all the CBD turned only into uh, Delta ATC. Rather, there are all these other things. Now, we're going to get into some fancy names here. Delta 4,8-ISO-THC, 9-ethoxyhexahydrocannabinol, um, and even performing, uh, getting new things that hadn't been discovered before, like isotetrahydrocannabifuran. Um, so these are things about which we know little or nothing. It may be that some of these substances are okay. It may be that they're not. They are potentially toxic. Some could be actually more psychoactive than Delta-9 THC. Um, and, you know, we'll probably get into some other nasties that have been found in Delta-8 products. But the bottom line is this. Basically, it is extremely unlikely that any commercial product with Delta-8 in it is going to only have that. Uh, we'll have these potentially toxic byproducts and potentially toxic solvent residues. Um, so, basically, uh, if you're using these products, it's a crapshoot as to what's really in there and what uh, bad effects they might have, either acutely or particularly if taken on a chronic basis. In most cases, uh, product manufacturers who are using Delta-8, um, they, you know, they, they, they get a test done that's, that's you know, perhaps needed for their state but one way or another there's a testing test done at some point of what what the the isolate is that they are they are purchasing or making and it's done and they're like oh you know it looks good but isn't isn't the science that to find any of these contaminants you actually have to be using standards to actually see them and and since there is all of this you know chemical static in the the isolate that is the resultant that that many people may actually think they're using an air quotes clean isolate of delta eight but the, the 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 costs are so preventative to to check for all of the toxic items that 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 kind of research is not being done on their products uh very likely not so what you said is quite right um so there is this blip on a, a screen uh, you know whatever kind of uh, analytical test is being done well that's going to remain unknown unless you have a standard um, a pure chemical um, that you've used in your analysis uh, that tells you what it is um, and for some of these compounds there aren't any standards so um, in the analytical studies that have been done, they figure it out using advanced uh, instrumentation um, and comparison with the literature. But, you know, these are just not uh, necessarily available in your friendly neighborhood lab. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I have struggled a bit with this, with the idea of Delta-8 being um, natural or a synthetic, because synthetic and natural both seem to um, be uh, inexact words. And, and you know, I originally learned about uh, Delta-8 as a synthetic, something that is not naturally occurring. But the more I speak with scientists, um, they say what what you have said, which is there's there's such a trace amount uh, that that it does occur in the plant. We're not exactly sure how it occurs in the plant, but but it's it's there in trace amounts. But to 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 say that Delta-8 is then natural seems to be a bit of a misnomer because that's not the Delta-8 that is used in uh, the market. What's used for product manufacturing is, uh, I-, I dare say, always going to be Delta-8 that's been synthesized from cannabidiol, which is synthetic because it's not naturally occurring. And so I just wanted to hear whatever your thoughts were on this, on these messy use of synthetic versus natural for uh, in, in, in an isolate. Right. Well, uh, you know, to keep it quite simple, uh, basically any consumer product uh, advertising itself as containing Delta ATC is of synthetic origin and subject to all the caveats and warnings that we've uh, already discussed. Um, and it gets worse from there. Um, you know, some of these products may contain Delta ATCO acetate. Um, there's a whole problem with this group of compounds, the um, esters. Um, when these are vaporized, uh, they can produce something called ketenes, which are toxic to the lungs and have been uh, associated with um, this uh, problem with the lungs called EVALI. Uh, which is an acronym for something very ominous uh, called e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. People may have heard of this term in relation to the vitamin E acetate scandal of a few years ago where vitamin E acetate was put in vape pens as sort of a carrier. Uh, It had a consistency that was sort of like um, Uh, cannabis concentrates um, and uh, was put in vape pens but a number of people were hospitalized and there were some deaths due to pulmonary damage uh, from this kind of compound. Um, The same thing could happen with any of these uh, acetates that uh, are sometimes seen as toxic byproducts of Delta ATHC production. So Actually, um, Delta-8-THCO acetate has been demonstrated on a vape pen, something called Blue Dream. This is showed, shown by Benowitz et al. on an article earlier this year. And they pointed out how uh, this uh, Delta-8-THC acetate, when subjected to heat, produced this ketene, which again is the lung-damaging compound. Um, so the same thing potentially could happen with any uh, Delta-8 vape pen um, if it had similar contaminants. 
Right on. So let's let's tease out that nuance a little bit because I think that it is, I think that it's the crux of this essentially the entire episode um, that that Delta Eight um, in a perfect world where it was isolated properly in a lab and then after the fact was cleaned up to remove contaminants which is a very uh, lengthy and arduous process and takes you know advanced skills that as that delta 8 as a medicine does have applications and does cause you know a 60% euphoria effect 60% of what delta 9 does however that's not the world we live in the world we live in is that um folks without enough experience are are isolating delta 8 not cleaning it up afterwards maybe don't have the experience to know everything that they that that they need to be pulling out don't have the budget or the lab to um identify the toxic contaminants and remove them and because and then this is the delta 8 that is is being dumped onto the market that's being synthesized from cbd from hemp from the last three years and this is what the problem is so so it's not scientifically true delta eight the problem is in the reality that people aren't putting out pure delta eight and it's actually got all this um these these extra contaminants in it uh yeah i mean uh quite right i mean the way i'd put it succinctly is delta eight thc the molecule or compound is not the problem the problem is how that delta 8 thc is produced um and again the toxic byproducts and solvent residues so uh, again don't blame the compound compounds all right but how it's made and available to consumers is the problem and uh, potentially a very big one um there was uh, a popular study from 2021 that w- that looked at this case of 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 delta 8 from cbd being sprayed on delta 9 flower to make it more potent and 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 then i believe subsequently they they were taking products from the licensed market where there should not be delta 8 and there were all of these products that had delta 8 in it um kind of like uh, to fortify the the experience of the regular delta 9 so so it's like uh you know a fortified vitamin or a fortified alcohol or something it's like it's like ah we we want to make it more strong and so we're going to we're going to add something extra and so people are adding delta 8 um and and not mentioning it on the label because it's in most states it's not supposed to be in their licensed market but they add delta 8 so that their product has what they think is an improved experience can you um explain what the downside would be for for people to be buying products that have got delta 8 in it without their knowledge uh well it's an unconscionable practice and um Uh, I would condemn anyone who engages in that kind of activity. Um, But beyond that, uh, again, it's a matter of uh, 
not knowing what you're getting, the likelihood of overdose, uh, if in a vape pen, the possibilities of lung damage. Um, and, you know, it's been demonstrated. There have actually been studies that show that uh, use rates of Delta-8 products are way higher in states that have restrictive cannabis policies as opposed to those that have freer access to natural cannabis uh, compounds. Um, so, um, and again, this stuff is not uh, without risks. Um, there was a study earlier this year, Simon et al. Um, there's a reporting system at the Food and Drug Administration for non-prescription drugs. It's called the FAERS uh, system. Um, and They've had a massive increase in reports associated with Delta-8 products. Um, just to give a rundown, uh, 33 deaths attributed to Delta-8 products, um, 49 hospitalizations, 109 serious reports, 41 non-serious. And this one will surprise people. There were more respiratory issues, problems with the lungs that were reported for Delta-8 THC products than any cannabis or hemp product. Mm -hmm. um, so that puts it in context. Uh, these things are not without risk. So this is quite in contrast um, to the claims uh, that have sometimes been made um, uh, there was a, a paper that was published uh, when it gotten past me if I reviewed it, but in 2022, Kruger and Kruger published a study. It was just an online survey of people using Delta-8 products. Um, and, you know, they reported um, that, um, I don't know how they made their comparisons. It wouldn't be scientific, but they reported Delta-8 was less intense. Uh, produced relaxation and euphoria, that it relieved pain, but also uh, was associated with short-term memory impairment. Um, there was a comment from one consumer that got in the title of the paper, and the quote was, Delta-8 feels like Delta-9's nicer young sibling. Hmm. Um, and um, I, it's just not borne out by the figures. Um uh, and, you know, the conclusion of the article was, quote, Delta ATHC may provide much of the experiential benefits of Delta 9 THC with lesser adverse effects. That's just plain wrong um, and never should have been in a published scientific article. Um, and I, I won't cast aspersions on the publisher, but I could. <laughs> And I think that this adds a lot to the confusion that we see amongst consumers about Delta-8. Um, you know, I kind of came into the Delta-8 understanding being prejudiced against Delta-8, I got to admit, because I was only ever seeing it in really low-quality unlicensed market products that were very low-priced in um uh, states where cannabis wasn't legal. And let's be clear off the top that, that, um, the fact that it's unlicensed doesn't actually bother me. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, a lot about, um, individual patient freedoms and to grow your own, um, on this show. But, but what does get me is when a product is of crappy, uh, 
um, quality period, whether it's in the licensed or in the unlicensed market. And so I would, when, when I first started seeing Delta eight, it was in, you know, the, the States and, and, you know, $10 vape cartridges in really, you know, bad packaging. And you could just tell like, oh man, somebody's going to get really sick from this stuff. And then they did, you know, and, and so, um, certainly there are uh, products in the unlicensed market that are, are quality, but certainly that's, that's not most of them. Most of them are, are of low quality. And, and because there, there are papers, um, like the one you just referred to, um, that, product manufacturers can grasp on, grasp onto and say hey look here's a study that says that you know it's safe and good it creates enough confusion in the market um, where where people don't or aren't educated and so they buy what they can afford and so these products are, are finding themselves more into uh, states that are not legal and then people who are low income which is you know such a drag um, I also found it interesting that um, um, it, there's an ASTN white paper in 2021 pointing out that the instructions for synthesizing Delta-8 are easily found on YouTube, um, but it's, it's, it's not as simple as it's often presented on YouTube most people don't have the the skills to do it safely and the study says it results in wildly unintended consequences so are those unintended consequences the same um uh toxic components that we've already referred to or or is it is something even further than that uh no that's it uh you know basically they referred in that uh white paper to acetic acid available in your kitchen uh translating that means vinegar so there there would be ways of making this with vinegar and heat um but again um you know i i don't trust a lab to do this properly why would we have any inkling that someone uh doing this in their as a kitchen chemist would have better luck in what they produce um no one should ever try this right on so um to to, to wrap us up here in set two um and, and i know we're putting a pretty sharp point on this but i i don't think that we can put too sharp of a point on it you know a lot of people say you know hey delta eight is in the plant we've been using the plant for you know thousands of years delta eight has a natural or origin and therefore and natural products are safe and therefore they say that delta eight in the, in their products is fine but but that's just not the right way to think about it is it no no all right so um let's wrap up here in uh set three um we're going to start uh talking about some of the unexpected attributes of delta eight and you know some of the interesting questions about uh delta eight and how to think about it that, that just haven't um fit into the show so far it's going to be kind of a hodgepodge of interesting delta eight topics i guess so uh let's go ahead and take um our second short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher dr Ethan Russo. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. 
Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. The cannabis seed market is filled with big name and hype breeders fighting to get your attention. And occasionally you discover a breeder who is breeding because it is the only thing they care to do and they would be doing it even if they never made a dime. That's my friend Craig Hartsaw, who makes seeds as magnetic genetics. Craig comes from five generations of farmers and is earning his master's degree in horticulture right now. He's been growing cannabis for 15 years and been breeding for nine. He hasn't sold many seeds because he really isn't a sales guy, but I've personally been growing his seeds for years, and I know I can always rely on his seeds to germinate, thrive, and smell and taste great. I suggested to Craig that he should probably sell some seeds and asked if he had enough stockpiled to bother. Much to my shock, he was sitting on five full menus in cold storage that he produced in the last two years and hadn't even tried to sell any of them. He was simply too busy breeding. Well, we, his friends, convinced him to make his damn seeds available to the people, and now they are. For the first time anywhere, you can now buy magnetic genetic seeds at Neptune Seed Bank and on Strainly.io. Neptune Seed Bank has just picked up magnetic genetics for a trial to gauge your interest. They are carrying three strains from his Mean Mug, Prominence, and Turpinado menus, which are exclusive to Neptune. It's an easy way to score his seeds. You can pick up those menus plus his hillbilly skunk and candy breath crosses and more on his profile page on Strainly.io. If you want very affordable seeds that are exceptional quality with rare terpene profiles from a good guy, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com or Strainly.io. 
Sometimes it is fun to buy the hype thing from the brand you admire, but when you're ready to buy the strain you'll love from an obscure mad scientist, you're ready for Magnetic Genetics. MagneticGenetics.org and on Instagram, Magnetic Genetics. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So here in the last set, we're going to talk mostly about um, things that like didn't really fit in the rest of the show, and there's some really interesting stuff uh, uh, about Delta-8 that we haven't touched on yet. And and the first thing I want to uh, uh, talk about, Ethan, is that you know we mentioned um, early, way back in the first set, that um, that uh, Delta eight works effectively as an antimimetic in uh, kids who are uh, experiencing chemotherapy, meaning that it decreases their nausea. Have we found anything else that Delta eight can do? Well, I guess anything at all, because, because Delta nine may actually be better than Delta eight for this, but have we found anything that Delta eight can do that, uh, that naturally occurring um, Delta nine THC and the other naturally occurring cannabinoids don't do better. Is there, is there anything unique that Delta eight can do that the other cannabinoids can't do? Uh, yes. And it would be its stability to heat mm. uh, as demonstrated in the ancient sample. And um, I suppose there could be some jurisdictions around the, the world where they had a law that specifically cited Delta 9 THC and didn't cite uh, Delta 8. And it might be possible there to use Delta 8 preferentially. Um, but, you know, that's a, a legal point, not a medical point. Mm -hmm. So it's thermal stability is its um, main selling point. Is the thermal stability something that is actually a health benefit or is that more a, oh, because it's more thermally stable, it makes it a good choice for some particular pharmaceutical products that have got to be heated? It would be that kind of situation or shelf life issues, mm -hmm. but um, I don't see this as being commercially developed in any capacity. Um, Meaning now or in the future or both? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, because... Um, to make a Delta-8 prescription product, it's going to have to go through years of testing and uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in expenditure to get it through phase one to three clinical trials. I don't see anybody doing that. Mm -hmm. Because the promise of it doesn't seem to be justi justify that much time and resources. Yeah, two points. One is it wouldn't be worth the investment. And two it's never going to do what herbal cannabis in a proper preparation can do. Mm -hmm. So this would be the place where I typically invoke the entourage effect. Um, go ahead. Why don't you go ahead and invoke it for those who aren't familiar with it? <laughs> um, there's nothing that pure THC, whether Delta 9 or Delta 8 can do that can't be done better by a properly con constituted um, herbal cannabis preparation. Um, you know, uh, we really benefit from having additional cannabinoids and terpenoids that reduce the side effect profile of THC in either form. And it makes for a better, more tolerable, and more effective medicine. 
Excellent. Excellent. We always, we always love to support the whole plant medicine thinking here on the show. So, you know, uh, during Shaping Fire episode 14, all the way back five years ago with uh, Dr. Greg Gerdman, uh, we discussed how synthetic cannabinoids can sometimes be used in the lab as a tool. So, so not as something that a human is actually going to ingest for a medical reason, but something that can be used in the lab as a tool to do, you know, one or other experiment or process. Um, would you explain briefly how synthetic cannabinoids can be useful in a lab setting? And then also whether you're aware of any useful tool that Delta-8 has become in the lab? Uh, okay. Well, you know, there actually have been hundreds of synthetic cannabinoids that have been used in the lab. Some of these are extremely potent as compared to Delta-9-THC. Um, those can be useful in pointing out pathways or the patterns of uh, the receptors in a given organ, especially the brain. So they're just tools that are used that way. And they, they're often used in animal studies. Uh, believe it or not, it's easier to acquire a lot of these synthetics than it is to get permission to use Delta-9 um, in such experiments. But we have to be very careful. Um, Rats are not humans, and in particular, uh, there have been some distinctions in the affinity of uh, Delta-8 for cannabinoid receptors in certain species of animals as compared to humans. Um, so, um, uh, I hate to say this, but you can only learn so much from animal studies. Mm -hmm. um, that's true. Um, there are distinct differences, and... Uh, any such literature has to be read with that in mind, that um, that's interesting, but it may not translate to human clinical use. Um, do you think that there are um, folks that are using Delta-8 as a tool in the lab, or, or is that not necessarily one of the synthetic cannabinoids that, that has use in a lab in that way? Um, it has been used. I wouldn't say a great deal. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it uh, might have to do with things like uh, its stability as compared to Delta-9. Right on. So um, in uh, some of the studies that have uh, grabbed um, products from the licensed market, um, as well as our general awareness of products in the unlicensed market, we find that some people will fail drug tests um, because they've had uh, Delta-8 um, with Delta-8-THC. And, and uh, folks think that, oh, it's got Delta-8. It doesn't have, you know, at real cannabis in it, if you will, these people will say. And so, and so they think it's safe to use, but yet they still um, fail drug tests for, you know, their trucking job or whatever. So will you just explain briefly why, um, uh, Delta eight is, is, is not safe for people who have to take drug tests? Uh, sure. You know, as we said in the beginning, the only difference is where this double bond is that makes a difference between Delta eight and Delta nine. So in, um, analytical assays for urine, testing metabolites of THC they're going to show up anyway so the bottom line is if you're getting urine testing for your job don't use delta 8 
simple. Right on. Easy and to the point. Um, you know, a, a lot of people uh, who are looking to defend um, uh, Delta 8, um, you know, as it's commercially made right now as an agricultural product, um, you know, they, they say, listen, it's an, it's an agricultural product like anything else, and, and we should be allowed to use it. Um, but on your webinar the other day, it was mentioned why, you know, Delta 8 doesn't make sense to consider it an agricultural product. And, and would you repeat that analysis? Uh, sure. You know, uh, it had its first origin in a plant grown in the ground, uh, presumably, although um, some Delta 8 may be made from synthetic CBD. But once it gets into the lab and subjected to these chemical transmogrifications, it's not natural. It's not an agricultural product. It's a synthetic product and one that invariably is contaminated. Right on. So, so is there a is there a scientific threshold point where um, where a, a molecule that started out in a plant is now considered a synthetic? Because I'm, I'm figuring that somewhere along that chain of synthesis, um, you know, it's it's officially no longer an agricultural product. Does that threshold exist, or is that um, more um, um, subjective? Uh, Anytime you've changed one thing into something else, that's uh, no longer agricultural. Right on. Fair enough. Um, we've had you on Shaping Fire uh, before to talk about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And um, this is the likelihood that, that someone will be especially sensitive to cannabis, causing a whole range of negative symptoms. Um, have we seen um, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome from um, being caused by D uh, Delta-8 products? Yes. In 2021, there was a case report. Uh, this is a woman who'd had prior gastric surgery and came in with nausea and vomiting. So she got a CAT scan to make sure that nothing was wrong with the surgery. Um, and her nausea and vomiting wasn't responding to the usual approaches and drugs that they used. Uh, it turned out she'd been using Delta-8 THC gummies. Um, they suspected she had cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and then responded to drugs that seemed to work better there, uh, specifically haloperidol, which is a major tranquilizer, um, and um, capsaicin ointment on the skin. So uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome will be caused by anything, uh, whether Delta-9, Delta-8, or synthetic cannabinoids that are uh, stimulating the CB1 receptor, the main psychoactive receptor uh, for cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, Delta-8 can be associated with uh, CHS. Right on. Thank you. So uh, as we wrap up here at the end of set three, um, I think I want to wrap up by reading a couple of um, um, quotes from uh, the the uh, C. Hudala study from 2021, uh, We Believe in Unicorns and Delta 8. Uh, from the cannabis scientist, um, and then and then and then I'm going to ask you a question, and 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 we'll we'll wrap up here. So so here are a couple quotes from from that paper. Um, the problem is not with Delta Eight, but the unregulated distribution of synthetic contaminated products. At least Walter White was a chemistry teacher. Delta Eight has become a money printing machine. 
But when I show producers what it is in their sample, they don't stop making it and they don't stop distributing it. They just go to another lab who will not acknowledge the contaminants found. Um, this really points to, oh, so I'm no longer quoting anymore. This is my voice now. Um, this really points to the, the shysty nature of a particular um, section of the um, unlicensed market, but even some of the licensed market, because we know Delta 8 has, has snuck into state-level um, legal markets. And, and let's finish with this, Ethan. You know, I know you're very passionate about this um, as a, you know, as a medical doctor and also as a uh, cannabis researcher uh, in search for the truth. Um, for folks that are making these um, Delta 8 um, products that we know are all coming from uh, synthesis from CBD, um, you know, what message would you have for them um, uh, uh, in encouragement uh, to perhaps reconsider their approach? Um, again, I would state that there's nothing that Delta 8 does that can't be done more safely and effectively with a natural cannabis product. Now, that may not be available to everyone, but, uh, you know, I hope that uh, the laws will change and that we see this commerce in Delta 8 disappear because to repeat what I said earlier, uh, the Delta 8 craze is a byproduct of prohibition. Well said. And, and at the end, this problem um, sits at the feet of our legislators who are choosing to drag their feet instead of taking um, real um, legalization action. Well, thank you, Ethan. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on uh, Shaping Fire, and um, especially with such a, uh, a nuanced topic as this um, that is just not getting enough attention. I appreciate you taking um, your time and your expertise and going uh, through it with us um, so that we too, as, as cannabis enthusiasts, can understand the nuances and you know, use it in our own lives as well as the, the people who we care for. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So, my friends, um, if you are interested in uh, learning more about Dr. Russo, there's a few ways to do that. Um, first and foremost, I highly recommend uh, you check out um, Ethan Russo's library of uh, work and research at Ethan Russo dot org and then click on the library tab um, you can also find a link to this um, on the shapingfire.com website for today's episode um, you can also uh, learn about uh, ethan russo's uh, work bringing uh, cannabis into uh, legal and healthful cannabis products and and different um, projects at credo dash science.com that's c-r-e-d-o dash science.com and then finally um if you have a burning question or a comment that is only going to be uh uh for ethan russo um you can email him at ethan russo at comcast.net now be realistic you know um ethan for all these years uh he does his best to get back with everybody but he is you know still an active researcher and he's he's flying around the world to give um to give lectures so so it might take him a while to get back with you so be realistic but um i think he does a pretty good job of, of getting back with everybody 
Finally, if you want to learn more from Dr. Russo, um, he has joined us several times on Shaping Fire over the last five years, and perhaps one of these uh, will interest you. Um, all the way back five years ago, episode uh, 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms episodes 11 and 27 about his uh, famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids episode number 67 about treating migraines with mushrooms and cannabis episode 80 on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome episode 83 on cannabigerol cbg and then um recently and and, and very heartfully episode 103 um in a memorial episode about the life's work of uh the very respected dr rafael mushulam and of course on the sh there's the shaping fire uh sessions a 10-part series on the shaping fire youtube channel you can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.